0: Extremely can't limited to Yeah, I can't imagine it's going to break any box office records.
1: No, I mean, I guess the idea is that, like, because it's got a Tolstoy thing with it, that olds might just go and see it because of that. Like, they see a sure. woman in like a dress like that. But by is the there beach. really
0: like a Tolstoy? uh I guess fan base. You know, like it's no, one I thing. Just, I, yeah, if I just it's Austin. Yes. Have you ever heard our, our, you've certainly heard our story. When we were at in line for love and friendship with all these old ladies who were dressed up like Jane Austen characters, and then this old lady ate shit and <laughs> fell into the cardboard sign by by right by me and Sherman and just knocked it over, and it was fucking insane. And there was like women in like bonnets and like Sherman like trying to like help this old lady up because she just tumbled, you know. But there were really, you know, yeah, the most of the crowd was. Uh, certainly not Whit Stillman you know.
1: No, 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 no.
2: The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell oh, wow. hey, the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> It's hot. That's hot
0: out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire. Hello friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me are Andrew Eulis. and Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme or topic for the week and the other two hosts program movies in response to that theme and we come on here into the Gauntlet Studios and have it out. It's episode 77, Let's Get Digital, and it was my topic and I asked the boys to bring me movies, shot on digital video in that awkward transitional period of cinema from the late 90s to the late aughts, roughly speaking, Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a topic near and dear to my heart because, of course, I met Andy in film school oh so many years ago in this very era and when we were young iconoclastic film students we shot on mini dv that was our uh i, I can't say preferred format of choice but it was our assigned what we got. <laughs> format of choice and uh yeah, you know, uh we came up in that era and I wanted to sort of revisit it, you know, the the texture and, and feel of shitty looking video that is in its own way uh, a beautiful thing Uh, and you you certainly did uh, did that with this pairing Uh, one a film that uh, I saw in its uh, original run and one that I was uh, happy to revisit and uh, another I hadn't seen but I was familiar with uh another digital work by uh, the same director. And so, uh, yeah, I was stoked uh, stoked with the choices, you know. So thank you, and uh, might as well just bring them out. Uh, Andy, you had the earlier film. Why don't you tell us all about it?
3: Absolutely.
0: I'd be happy to. I think
3: I, I've learned after 70-some episodes to just go with my gut. You know, I'm, I'm trying to just trust my instincts a lot more. And this week when Ryan and I were discussing our potential picks, um, the, the film that I ultimately chose uh, was basically the first thing that popped into my head. And it's a film that I know you had seen and a film that I uh, knew you were a big fan of. And like me, I was assuming it had been a long time since you'd seen it. And I asked Ryan if he hadn't, when he said no, that uh, fully, fully, fully put the bow on it. Because, you know, as we will discuss, this was, I think, um, a, a long overdue... Uh, gap uh, that Ryan especially had to cover, <laughs> and um, you know we're we'll get into it a little bit, right? But the film that I picked is from 2002, and that is Michael Winterbottom's 24 Hour Party People. For those who are unfamiliar, this is a. Uh, very funny, very snarky, very clever, very meta-textual exploration of the rise and fall of factory records and the Madchester music scene from uh, the, well, mid-late 70s up to, I should say, about the 90s, the the Manchester music scene. And uh, we get... Uh, an entry into this story through our narrator the the man the myth Tony Wilson here played by Steve Coogan and this is a uh a really like sort of madcap uh and I think um very very sharp journey into so many musical acts Uh, and their genesis, and their demise. Uh, Bands like The Sex Pistols, Joy Division, New Order, The Happy Mondays, Uh, all these, these bands that played such a huge part in this very vibrant and interesting period of music. It is a film that was shot on a camera that basically we used in film school. I think it was the, I wrote it down, the the Sony DSR PD-150, which is basically the cousin to the DVX-100, which we more or less used. If I'm not greatest. mistaken, wasn't that what you shot frontwards with? Was it the
0: DVX-100? That was actually shot on a JVC-700, but previous to that, the Panasonic DVX-100 was my camera of choice, for oh, sure.
3: Mine as well. Um, and it is shot by of all people, the god Robbie Muller in his final feature film. Whoa. Uh, which I thought was very interesting, considering the, the long career that he had as one of the the greatest cinematographers of all time and sort of saying goodbye in this era, in this moment that you laid out in your topic, this transitional period really between film and ultimately high definition digital video. So uh, it's a really interesting film. I think um, Robbie Muller's a genius, so he leans into this format. And uh, obviously, I think, again, it's something we're going to discuss, the, the particular look of this film. And it is a, uh, a stunning uh, film uh, on a certain level, I think, in how it's constructed and how it looks. Um, and, yeah, uh, its it's got a, a, a great cast in it, uh, really, aside from uh, Coogan. You have uh, Patti Considine. You've got Lenny James. You've got uh, a Gollum. Pho- yeah, you have of course Gollum, <laughs> Andy Serkis as Martin Hannett, the uh, the 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 mad uh, mastermind behind the production of so many of these great uh, musical acts. You've got Rob Brydon making an early appearance as well, that he will of course uh, you know reprise later on with both Winterbottom and Coogan for all of the various trips they'll take across Europe in those uh, films, and I guess. TV shows, you could say. Um, so thrilled to rewatch this film again. You know, it it brought me back to an earlier topic that we had done, which was on nostalgia for a time or you know place or atmosphere that we we didn't experience. And this film is a perfect for me anyway, entry into that category as well. The various uh, shows and at times archival footage that are deployed throughout this film just make me green with envy for every person who could be in those clubs and dank uh, labor union halls and stuff like that, where these (laughs) bands cut their teeth and began their, their explosive, um, Takeover of the music scene in the UK. So, yeah, that is the film that I brought 24 Hour
0: Party People. Thank you very
1: much, Andy. Ryan, why don't you tell us about what you brought? Well, I particularly love DV cam films. I love the way they look, especially when they're projected on film. And when you had Pitch the topic. Of course, the, the very first film I thought of, and I was later called out for, like, oh, Ryan, you're of course going to pick this movie. And it's like, well, this movie's about three hours long. I don't know if I have time this week to, to really knock it out. But that is the, uh, the Inuit film, Atanajwat, The Fast Runner. It is, like, an exceptionally beautiful film that I'll never forget when I saw it projected, because I just like, couldn't believe the way that DV specifically looked projected on 35. Like, it has, like, such a unique texture, and then by being projected on film, there's, it's just so much brighter and the colors come out crazy. It's like digital colors meeting celluloid, you know, it's, it's, it's a wild recipe. Um, So that was my instinct, you know, to go after that one. And instead I thought, you know, like, okay, let's, let's, let's pick something maybe I haven't seen before. And when Andy had said he was doing 24 hour party people, I remember this film, you know, Marsh, you've been trying to get me to see that forever. Um, and I've always wanted to. There's no reason I've avoided it or anything. But you, you'd always described it to me as like a, kind of like this like bad vibes comedy, you know. And I was like, OK, OK. Um, you know, there's there's this other film from 2003 called The Forest for the Trees, directed by the German filmmaker Marin Ada, more famously known for. I was going to say recently, but I think it was like 2016 when she did Tony Airdman. Yeah, not <laughs> recent. A, a long time ago. Um, but, it, you know, it, it still lingers in my mind, that film. Uh, but this was, this was her debut feature. So I went with The Forest for the Trees, which has notoriously been described to me as uh, some real bad vibes uh, in a comedy of sorts. You know, I... What? and so she directed it at a time in her life when she was a similar age as the protagonist of this film Melanie. The film follows a 27 year old woman named Melanie who has just moved to a new town to be a school teacher. Um, She's joining the school year halfway through, so she's already coming in at a little bit of a disadvantage there. She also has the disadvantage of being um, extremely graceless uh, socially. She's the kind of person that sort of enters a room and is just so desperate to be liked that it all just Comes across in the worst way possible. Someone who is really trying to take control of every situation they're in, steering it in this positive direction. And because of it, because of that tryhard energy, she she can't quite see the forest for the trees. You know, as the title will uh, alludes to. The film itself uh, is a series of rather awkward encounters between her and some of her coworkers, along with a woman who lives across the street from her that she um tries to like start up a relationship with the only way they have a connection is that this woman tina works at a department store and Melanie sort of like shoves her way into her life's kind of forces all of these expectations on her and how she wants their friendship to go and as the film goes on it just gets a bit darker it gets a bit more intense the situations really start to wear on you emotionally and you can see a woman sort of coming apart at the seams Um, As I said, it was her debut feature and it was a thesis film, so that is sort of one of the reasons that it was shot on digital video, on DV cam. This one is sort of out of production necessity, just in terms of their budget, but it definitely does evoke, you know, that early 2000s DV feel. Uh, It's pretty unadorned. This is not a colorful film. Um, It's a film that kind of feels as jerky and as gray uh, as the emotions that she's experiencing through Route it. i i had a lot of fun i i don't know if i would say it was like as cringe inducing as it was advertised to me but there were definitely moments where i was squirming and i could you know i could really feel it um i i still kind of felt bad for her she was getting bullied by all of her students that she you know she just could not contain um but yeah just some of the scenes of melanie with with her co-workers and really just trying to make friends uh I tell you, as someone who, who recently moved and has been, like, kind of interested in trying to make new friends, uh, this is, like, a great textbook of just everything you absolutely should not do when trying to develop new friendships. Uh, so, yeah, that is The Forest for the Trees from 2003. Thank you very much. I want to just reminisce for a, for a second. You know, do.
0: Speaking of nostalgia, Andy. But, uh Yeah, 24 Hour Party People came out when I was in high school. And I had read uh, Ebert's four star review of it, you know, in the paper. And I remember using that as evidence. Uh, to why I needed to borrow my dad's car to drive to the city to Piper's Alley to see 24 Hour Party People as a Hell yeah. as a mere high schooler. I'm like, look, Ebert gave it four stars. Like, <laughs> it's about punk. It's cool. Like, you know, I like that or whatever. Uh, and and indeed, you know, this was certainly uh, when I yeah when I was a punk. You know, I at that time I was going to Fireside and seeing. shows and and you know wrapped up in, in music mostly in my life and so uh, this film hit me of course uh, you know in the sweetest spot uh, in those days as a seventeen year old interested in in music and this kind of thing uh, and yeah it was just a, it was a pleasure to uh, to revisit you know and it certainly. Uh, is is a is an interesting looking film in how it it mixes media and also like so many early two thousands films just as like it's just chaotic and whether it's the cinematography style or like the color grading, the black and white, you know, the effects, like it is just like an onslaught, uh, of digital effects, you know, uh, on top of everything else. And I think, um, you know, it's obvious why I think they, they shot it on, on digital, right. Uh, number one. So it's like mobile and chaotic, but also like, yeah, this is, uh, a movie about punk and a movie about DIY spaces and people who have, uh, you know, allegedly beliefs and ethics, you know, again, debatable. We could talk about that, but, um, I think it's, yeah, it, it's fitting to the anarchic spirit of the movie that it is just, yeah, this messy DV uh, thing, you know, that also takes the shape of, like, a TV magazine because we're following Tony Wilson, a TV presenter. And so it's, you know, it's it's all over the place in the best way possible. And I think, you know, on the flip side, Forest for the Trees, uh, also just, like, the digital makes it so much more immediate. So when those cringe-inducing moments or embarrassing or awkward moments happen, like there's just something that pierces <laughs> pierces through the digital that does not on celluloid and so yeah you know maybe it's a cliche but i think in the case of it of forest for the trees like it's raw and the raw camera work mm. and the raw uh cinematography fits with the the uneasy emotions going on
1: yeah it's amazing how it can make things feel too real even when it is rather stylized in its faux reality you know and i was really really compelled by the digital and just the mixed media stuff in 24 hour party people, because at first glance it seems kind of obvious, you know, you're like, okay, it's digital. I get it right. Like they're doing not quite a mockumentary, um, which is interesting. Like it's not really, we're never supposed to presume that there is someone there with a camera. Even though there is a lot of fourth wall breaking and direct address, the film kind of explains that away as postmodern flourishes, especially when Tony likes to claim that he was like into postmodernism before everyone else was. Before it was cool. Yeah, before it was cool. <laughs> He's never but the film like never sets this expectation that like that camera is really there. But it's interesting because when it is mixing these medias, like I think there's this great early sequence when they go to a Sex Pistols show and the DV footage is, you know, not looking at the stage. It's facing the audience. Um, And then the reverse shot, of course, is just real footage of the Sex Pistols. And then even interspersed within that, there looks to be like 16 millimeter footage that like bridges that gap. But it's interesting how the film sets up these rules with its mixed media, where it's not necessarily, again, suggesting that we're watching like a documentary, but that these moments are supposed to feel real when we're hanging out with the DV camera. And it's these other moments that maybe feel like they're a step above the real, that they're these dreams or just something that feels out of time and place much like joy division did in the late 70s you know yeah i mean
3: i i think my reaction to it was uh was just that was um because there is so much blending of um this 16 millimeter and and at times it seemed to me maybe even little eight millimeter here or there Mm -hmm. uh just these 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 you know smaller formats of film that were stepped on and and not treated so well over the years that the the crudeness of the mini DV at this point in time was with some filters able to blend at times I would say almost seamlessly with that stuff uh, the mm-hmm. the Sex Pistols show that opens the film. Um, is a is a great case in point, and even prior to that, when we get his little uh, hang gliding expo, uh, that's that's part of the news show, the Granada Television news show that Tony Wilson uh, was a long time host of, because that's also a blending of the actual footage of Tony Wilson, the real Tony Wilson on this hang glider, and Steve Coogan or a
0: stuntman or whoever also you can't hide that green screen from O2 though. Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean
3: like th- there are a lot of times in the film where to me it's it's blended quite well. Um and and even when it isn't I think again to your point Marsh like um the film kind of just simply says in the spirit of so many of the figures it's exploring Well, who gives a shit? You know, who cares? Of course it's a movie. Of course this was a fantasy. In fact, there are multiple times within the film, whether they're breaking the fourth wall or not, that there is this sort of um, philosophizing about, you know, truth versus legend, right? Reality versus myth. And how Tony Wilson, the the central figure, uh, quoting John Ford is like, well print the legend always. And, and I think that that is why the film, um, kind of can oscillate between the two of trying to, to masquerade, uh, its, its digital quality, uh, and at other times embrace it and sort of lean into it depending on the moment, depending on the the time period as well.
0: I mean it really is the kind of representative of the dichotomy of, of Tony Wilson himself, right? As the the narrator of this film and in one of its central subjects, he is On the one hand, a professional television presenter who is respectable uh, in his field in TV journalism, and as he will have you know, he went to Cambridge, Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of his storytelling leans on, yeah, being that sort of, like, intellectual English snob, you know, who's bringing up literature and myth. And so that's all built into the story as well, but he's also kind of an anarchist kind of a kind of a socialist kind of a punk kind of actually a guy who on principle, didn't sign deals with bands because they should just get all the money. (laughs) Like, I mean, he was obviously, yeah, a a madman. And obviously it's clear, uh, at least, how he's presented in the film. Uh, He's certainly not doing this for money. Uh, He may be doing this for ego. He may be doing it for prestige, but... uh, it's not for money you know and so tony wilson is this like split personality guy he's uh the host of wheel of fortune uh in the in the later 80s you know on english television and he's also yeah the guy that paid for the recording of closer you know by joy division and you just go like this guy of course you know so uh He's Steve Coogan, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny too how the film has this built in element of tony wilson obviously being an unreliable narrator the film is like constantly reminding us of that fact like even if this thing could be read as a biopic we have people interrupting the reality of the film such as one of the band members of the buzzcocks saying like i don't remember this even happening you know when he's supposedly caught having sex with tony wilson's wife in a in the bathroom stall of a venue so the film is repeatedly telling us like this is an unreliable narrator and that's like part of the anarchy of its texture. And then it almost feels like the exact opposite with The Forest for the Trees. Like, I'm compelled by the comparisons between these two protagonists, Tony Wilson and Melanie. Um, But it's funny how formally these two films, one that's like self-avowed, unreliable narrator, 24-hour party people, and The Forest for the Trees almost feels like the exact opposite of that. Where... It really doesn't feel like Ada is totally guiding how we're supposed to feel about Melanie. I mean, naturally, we feel some sympathy in many situations because of how it's all arranged, like with the students. But really, she's kind of like stepping away and just showcasing all of this um, and saying, It's really up to you. You know, I'm your narrator that's just walking you through all of this. Like, you need to, I'm forcing you to watch these scenes of social gracelessness, but it is up to you how you kind of you know digest it (laughs) well i think
3: on a certain level like both films uh do a really good job of sort of like de-romanticizing their subject matter
1: Mm -hmm.
3: certainly in the case of like forest for the trees i you, you could see in lesser hands how this could really just become some sort of um I don't know, almost like a hokey melodrama, uh, yeah, and, and, or a feel-good story of redemption or something like that, and and it's it's not, it's it's ambivalent and it's ambiguous, and you know, for all the moments when we might um, feel our heartstrings getting tugged, we will then slap our forehead and just go like, I cannot spend five more minutes with this person like they are fucking blowing it so hard they're they're self-sabotaging you know like and and 24-hour party people i think portrays tony wilson and the the various uh other historical figures in a similar light you know they're it's it would be again very very um very simple to to look back on so many of these seminal bands and these sort of towering acts and 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 figures in the music industry and just think like, man, wasn't everything so much better then wasn't it great to be here? weren't these people all geniuses and brilliant and and every single person, for the most part, I would say, maybe except for Alan Erasmus and and Rob Gretton, uh, kind of like, look like fools look like assholes look like jerks which is what they probably i mean i shouldn't say probably which they definitely were <laughs> so so the film kind of resists that i think in a in a you know in a very very a very intelligent way that it's sort of taking the piss constantly out of this and i think that is so much more in line with the spirit of again this time these bands
0: and this and this this whole scene, yeah, the lack of sentimentality and redemption for both of the the main characters and just like the films in general, I think uh, is a really, really compelling connection. I mean, ultimately, these are both unlikable and unreliable. Protagonists. I mean, you want to talk about Melanie self-sabotaging her social life, Tony Wilson self-sabotages factory records like a million times over. I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. no there's no more like case in point than, you know, and this is depicted in the film when they uh, make the Blue Monday single for New Order, they design it in such an intricate way that for every record sold, they lose money. And then it became the highest-selling single in UK history. (laughs) And that's just a net loss. I mean, you know, great song, New Order, we love it. But, like... You the
3: album cover <laughs> was was worth more than the record itself. You know? and
0: that's the kind of like buffoonery uh, that, yeah, is on the one hand totally damning, but it's also like, yeah, what's what's beautiful about this story and about Factory and about Tony Wilson, you know, the contract in blood, you know, like yeah. it's like the the Citizen Kane Declaration of Principles, but for like late seventies Manchester, you know. And I think it's interesting that you bring that up that you mentioned Citizen Kane and Orson Welles because I
3: I couldn't help but feeling this time around that I think the elaborate construction we're dis, we're discussing uh, this time really reminded me of like F for Fake and, and a sort of similar stance that Orson Welles takes to the idea of you know authenticity in art and entertainment and also you know pulling back the curtain showing the 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 sort of like spirit of ultimately like a merry prankster, a magician more than anything that that so many creative people, uh, especially those who are sometimes referred to as geniuses, are really more than anything just like high wire acts that at any moment can have a very 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 cataclysmic fall. and I, I think that this movie in sort of at various points, kind of revealing its own construction, revealing its own artifice, is is like in Wells F for Fake, um, playing a joke as much as it is trying to present itself as some sort of statement or, you know, declaration of principles. You well know? it
0: would be antithetical to the whole project to like Try and say something, which is actually I do have to bring up, you know, this time around, I did find the the Ian Curtis like tribute section to actually kind of be like too much for, you know, for I think in, in the context of the rest of the film, it's like. Like, specifically, like using the music video and like that sort of like veering into hagiography. Yeah. um, Rubbed me the wrong way this time. But I think the rest of the movie perfectly, you know, captures the the lack of sentimentality. I mean, when Tony Wilson uh, sees Ian Curtis's body, he starts like, you know, like like summarizing it like a a music journalist, you know?
4: That is the musical equivalent of Che Guevara.
0: and of course he's you know shielding himself from his real emotions but he's also just a piece of shit yeah you know he's a he's a band promoter like he is just like like scum you know oh yeah but i I guess i guess for me like yeah the the that moment
3: i i i hear you um but i i guess I, i did still feel like even in spite of that the the music video which is like yeah you know like Corbin, yeah the 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 scene of like his oh funeral yeah, that's great is incredible yeah. you know and specifically like, the things that he's saying to a at this time like relatively unknown simon pegg who's playing the journalist it's not mentioned his name isn't said in the film but he's the journalist who would write the book you know the the book, what was it, uh, Joy Division to New Order, was that what its original mm. title was? Mick Middles, is that his name? Um, like Simon Pegg is the journalist, like does not want to go into the funeral, like doesn't feel like he belongs there. And Steve Coogan's like, Oh, good of you to be here. I'm so glad you're here, and like, kind of forces him in. And Simon Pegg's character is like so uncomfortable, like wants out of there. Doesn't feel like you know this is an invasion, is what is what he feels. And and specifically, one of the things that Tony Wilson says in there when they're looking at the obnoxiously adorned corpse of of Ian Curtis, who's dressed up like a like an angel in his coffin, which is an obscenity unto itself, you know. Yeah. Um, He's one of the last things he says to Simon Pegg, who is just like just desperate to get out of that room. Says, "Take it all in, take it all in." And I was cracking up this direct because I was like, "Absolutely, that's the point." He's a fucking piece of shit, and he's using this as a moment to capitalize. And and as you've mentioned, perhaps not monetarily, but on legend, on myth, on storytelling, on narrative. You know that that even for him, as much as he will sit there and say. You know, Ian Curtis was. I was. You know, uh, he changed my life. He changed music. He was so important. I'm also like
1: literally dancing on his grave. Uh, it's. It is very cynical. That funeral scene is a really interesting moment of characterization too. When you think about it, because I learned that Tony Wilson was not at the funeral, so his presence there is totally invented. So the fact that. The scene, which credits Tony Wilson as a special consultant on uh, just the film in general, like advising it, like they rewrote history here to place him at a funeral. He didn't attend for like, I'm trying to remember what the reason was, but it was it was preventing someone from spoiling the funeral by showing up and like making a scene. He was like protecting, I think, like another addict or something like that. So it wasn't out of neglect. But the fact that they place him at the funeral to characterize him as a piece of shit is kind of an amazing gesture, you know, in a biopic for this guy. Yeah, which he appears in, gladly. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And which is then again, also thinking about the idea of both of these films being about self-sabotage here with 24-hour party people, like the real Tony Wilson is sort of engaging in self-sabotage with the production of this film. But I I hadn't thought about it that way, Andy, and I think that self-sabotage is maybe the primary thing that does connect Both of these protagonists, because when we first see Melanie setting herself up in her new apartment building in Forest for the Trees... The the very first thing she does is she goes door to door, and she's giving out these homemade schnapps that she's made, and she describes it as a housewarming gift. And then by the time she gets to the second or third person, she makes a joke about, like, oh, I guess this isn't really a housewarming gift, because otherwise you would be giving it to me. And. It's like already immediately, here's like, you know, the worst person in the world. It's like someone who is so desperate for her life to be like orderly and controlled that she's like immediately just setting this precedent of like, this is how I expect you to treat me. Her idea of making friends is to like, yes, yeah, set a precedent, which is just like nauseating. And that happens throughout so much of the film. It, her gestures are of kindness never fully register as honest because it seems as though she's doing it with the expectation that it all just gets returned to her. Yeah. You know, it's
3: transactional Mm
1: -hmm. and, and,
3: and only like now am I able to kind of reflect back on that particular scene. And, and now that I'm able to see the forest for the trees, having seen the whole film, (laughs) uh, uh, I realize that that scene, you know, was also her basically like auditioning her new friends. In part, she's going door to door because she's looking for a certain type of person that she wants to attach herself to. She doesn't, just start trying to become friends with everybody. She she does this until she finds basically like her mark, her target of <laughs> yeah. of like a a person, ultimately a woman that she's like, you know, you're going to be my best friend. You know, she finds like an old guy and she's kind of like, all right, well, you know, it was nice to meet you. Here's the schnapps. And then there's like another guy who answers the door that like right away, she's just like, yeah, here, here's some schnapps. And she just like wants to get out of there because she's like, I can't. <laughs> This is not what I'm looking for. And also like when she went, like when she's at this school early on, there is another teacher who is trying to make friends with her. And she's just like, God, get this guy away from me. And he's like, ultimately as we'll see throughout the film, like the only person who is genuinely nice to her repeatedly and making an effort outside of of her attempts to sort of like ensnare someone, uh, a, a social circle she wants to to be a part of that she wants to basically like force herself into, but like she herself is trying to like pick and choose, and she is mm-hmm. rejecting very much, uh, as, as much I should say as she's she's trying to be like you know invited.
0: Yeah, when she introduces herself to all the teachers, you know, it's it's another just horribly awkward moment where uh, she's, again, it's unclear, like, the setup. Like, you know, it just cuts into this scene. And there's, like, champagne and a little buffet. And I'm thinking, like, <laughs> she bought all this, right? Oh, maybe. That's a that's a good question. They don't just have, like, the school's not just going to shell. Is, you know, are they going to shell out for that kind of spread? Well, I mean, it is Europe. You know? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you when I was at <laughs>
3: University of Edinburgh,
0: there, were, yeah, a there lot, were a lot of spreads.
3: There was a lot of booze. Yeah. There was a lot of booze. All right. Well, I so,
1: think it's vague me, enough, though, because she does continually do that throughout the movie. The, you yes. Know? yes.
0: The buffet is a kind of an important part of this movie in, in several, several places. But, yeah, so she's, you know, like, there's this whole, like, let's have champagne. I'm the new teacher. But she can't help herself to, you know, say to them, like, oh, I've got I got the new techniques, basically, to all these to the, all these old teachers.
2: And I freue mich wirklich sehr auf die Zusammenarbeit mit Ihnen allen. Ja, und das Buffet ist jetzt quasi eröffnet.
0: And yeah, I mean, it, it's a remarkable thing that this movie does, which is really. The, all that stuff i think come at least came to me gradually as the film builds you know like you notice something all right she's like fucking weird you know but like you don't really understand like what's going on you know again forest for the trees even as a viewer right it like has to be slowly revealed because there's plenty of reason to have sympathy for her, her students Sucks so much. Oh, I mean, yeah. oh th- like, God. it's insane. And, you know, it is pointed out in the film, like, you know, she she wants to be, like, liked, which is why they all disrespect her and hate her, you know? Especially thinking about, like, what a German school uh, is like, you know, even compared to an American school. Probably a little strict, you know? And they're used to uh, a much, you know, tighter hand in the classroom. And she... So desperate, she's so lonely, she's so alone, she's so desperate to be liked uh, for approval yeah for approval uh that yeah i mean it's hard not to feel bad for her i mean like this fucking kid throws chocolate milk at her uh in class and then everyone basically like denies that they're like whatever i mean it's an yeah. insane whole like little thread of the movie
1: yeah even that student's mother you know that it is a crazy thread that you know it all <laughs> gets like turned against her like the mother yeah. blames her for the chocolate milk incident she's like well you know, my son didn't necessarily describe it as him he didn't fling the chocolate milk at you i think that's being a little extreme melanie you know but she even says like well you know my son he wasn't getting these poor grades With the previous teacher, like, have you ever thought what that's doing to his mental health? Could you maybe put you know put two and two together there with the uh, with the chocolate milk? Yeah, she's getting shit on.
0: (laughs) She's getting shit on constantly by everyone, and you know, you really do feel bad. Like she's. Come into this town. Come into this situation. She's also just gotten out of a long-term relationship, uh, which we awkwardly see in the opening scene, uh, and then just can only speculate about you know what that was like. Really, the only detail we get is her ex-boyfriend used to watch a lot
1: of Baywatch, and that's
0: <laughs> suspect, <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, that's like some interesting character work too. Like how it's like so much can be conveyed with so little, because we really do know. Know nothing about her previous relationship but when they part ways and she thanks him for helping him move in his response is well we're both adults here <laughs> you know and you know like oh so, something nasty was going on here beforehand like this like really terse awkward um separation but it is true how the film does really skillfully build up this portrait of her because at first i felt the same way during a lot of these scenes, I was like, ah, you know, that, that might not be what I would have said if I was introducing myself <laughs> to uh, the new faculty at a school. But, you know, we, we all have our flubs, you know, but then it just like there's this consistency, this really quiet consistency. She keeps doing all of these things and you just your eyes just start getting wider and wider. And you're like, what is going on here? Like, what are you doing? And there's almost there's something I felt that felt really authentic in his depiction of loneliness, because I feel like in more of like a cringe comedy like this, it would be very clear, like throughout all the time, like everything she's doing is so awkward and so zany. But these offenses are very quiet but when as they build you just start to get like so concerned about her mental health and her well-being and it's you're just like where is this gonna go and because i watched 24-hour party people first as i was
0: watching this film in my head i just kept thinking like She's lost control. She's lost control. <laughs> you know, like to see the, the baseline was ringing in my head as she's just like coming apart at the seams.
3: Here, here's what I said when I was like watching this movie, uh, you know, to myself alone, uh, because I also had, had uh, watched 24 uh, Hour Party People first and then, you know, coasted into this one. It really, really hit me. Like halfway through the movie, I was like, "Oh my god, this whole movie is a Joy Division song." Like that's <laughs> it, you know. I'm like, everything that Ian Curtis fucking you know crooned about on stage is is being represented in this whole fucking movie right here. Alienation, separation, loneliness, existential doom, dread, feelings of inadequacy, awkwardness. I mean, like it was the lost joy division single that we never got really
0: (laughs) i see it (laughs) absolutely and i think you know like that's another thing that i think 24-hour party people does well which is you know show you like what this music scene did and was and meant for manchester but also that it's like of a very bleak place i mean especially in the 70s and 80s in the you know like deindustrialization of uh england and in america and that whole era of these factory towns like manchester just becoming like you know, place places to have raves in because there's nothing else to do.
3: Yeah, you know? I mean, there's that incredible sequence of a sort of like uh, uh, a Joy Division performance that's taking place, and then we're getting archival footage of you know labor strikes, of you know the National Front, the largest collection of neo fascists marching in Manchester. Like, we are seeing the the collapse of like the UK in. The late 70s embodied in uh, the the spirit of Ian Curtis, like up there on stage, flailing, sweating, wide-eyed, falling apart himself,
0: losing control
3: himself. I mean, to to hit the nail right on the head.
0: And that's when I really started thinking, Melanie just needs to join a band you know but it doesn't appear that there are any bands around where <laughs> she is in uh ryan did you look up where this was Karl no i don't know where it is all right well w- would you what would you guys say it's kind of a a suburb or a, a that's how a, it
1: feels a small town i know it's where uh, the school is where um Maranata's parents taught her parents are teachers Right.
3: I mean it's a it's a smaller city, um, because like they reference like having a weekend in Hamburg, which
0: would be the bigger city. Right. So And there is an African restaurant, you know. There is an
3: African restaurant. <laughs> uh, there's there's one club, I think, El Taquito, uh, where she she shows up again, like, uh, sort of trying to insert herself into a social
0: situation that she has no business being in. There's another connection between the films. There are uh club scenes in yes. both films because yes. these are European films after all
3: Indeed. with very, very, very different vibes,
0: very different <laughs> vibes. Although, you know, the, the rave vibes of 24 hour party people have their own darkness, oh, uh, certainly. and a whole section of the film devoted to, uh, uh, that darkness and the gangsterism that went on um, but really I was also thinking like th- these films are hilarious double feature because it's the ultimate study in uh, the hyperactive protagonist versus the inactive protagonist I mean I guess she has her, her moments of action but she is really defined by her lack of you know obviously as we've discussed the ability to see the bigger picture but she has no life she has no
1: fucking life get a life you know yeah and i mean i think like one thing she does that's really interesting in that respect throughout the film it feels as though there is whatever her life might be (laughs) her private life is being depicted in the background through the set design of her apartment did you guys notice like throughout the film her apartment started getting like more and more trashed i don't know if trashed is the right word but things like started to become like just in total disarray oh there yeah were, like monitors stacked in weird places it looked like she was almost sleeping on the floor
0: did i notice she's moving the furniture yeah. across
1: the room <laughs> yeah, in yeah. The movie. she does yeah. have a scene where she literally <laughs> destroys yeah. her apartment <laughs> well yes yeah but <laughs> but i think there is something interesting there where it's like yeah she truly like cannot get a life she's more willing to like take out you know her quote unquote friends trash than to deal with you know whatever might be happening with her because that's like another funny thread is just <laughs> desperately trying to get along with her neighbor across the street that she met at the department store who is like continually like not really engaged Melanie she's been much more passive while Melanie is like so desperate to just make things with Tina work um, and there's a moment where Tina is sort of like packing things away and Melanie just promises to like take out the trash for her like I'll. She she can't quite fit everything into the dumpster in their apartment building. So Melanie's like, oh, I'll take it out to the dump for you. And then it's just driving around with another woman's trash, like three bags of trash in her car for presumably weeks. It's kind of hard to tell how long it goes on. But like this is a woman whose personal life is is both non-existent and also just decaying around her at every moment in the the movie when we get glimpses at it. Yeah, because again, it it wasn't about taking out the trash. It was never
3: about the trash.
2: No. It, was, it, was,
3: <laughs> it was always about Tina and Tobias by extension. Um, and I think that's it. I mean, like, for me, as the film went on, like, I, I, I gradually lost sympathy for her i certainly could empathize but i i i lost sympathy and i just mm-hmm. started to to i mean she made my stomach hurt i mean really watching yeah. <laughs> so many of her hurt really really you know increasingly like manic and desperate attempts to 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 win over tina um But, but yeah, I mean, that's really what I realized was that it's like everything that she's doing is, as we discussed before, like it has an ulterior motive and, you know, it it just became, I mean, invasive and aggressive. I really at a certain point started to, to fear for tina i really was me too was afraid this movie
0: could have ended with the murder and i wouldn't have like blinked no you
3: know? <laughs> no i mean really and like i mean get i you gotta like give props to tina as as someone who uh gave this woman gave melanie like way way more chances than than any reasonable person yeah, should She really have. did
0: not need to invite her to her birthday party. No.
3: Oh, no, but on the on the flip side again like in a very human way you could see that that uh she was just sort of like I I I don't know what else to do. I don't know how to get rid of this person. I mean, uh she's 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 spying in on my apartment. She's ringing my doorbell constantly. She's calling me incessantly and leaving messages and and perhaps out of fear for something drastic. She she would constantly sort of fold in that regard, but it's a it's a nice um and nice is maybe a weird way to put it but it's a, it's a it is like a good connection between these two characters because tony wilson is 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 a very similar person where in a different way and almost the inverse way of of just when you think he's got it together and just when you're you're sort of like rooting for him and and you feel he is like this guy really is in it for the right reasons he's in it for the jazz he's in it for the music he's in it for 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 the art uh he will then like unveil his 30,000 pound table that he bought for their office that they barely use, you know, and it's, it's all coming out of new orders pocket. Apparently. I mean, like you just, you just go like, like Patty Considine as, as Rob Gretton, the the long suffering manager of new order. Like there are just so many moments where he just suddenly is trying to strangle Tony Wilson. And, and I'm like cheering him on because Holy crap, this guy is is not just fucking with his own life, he's fucking with everyone's life around him and 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 basically like ruining Wheel of Fortune. Will
4: Anthony Wilson and Terry Seymour Welcome to the Wheel of Fortune. There it is, the wheel that throughout the centuries has been used as a symbol for the vicissitudes of life. Bepheus himself in his great work, The Consolation of Philosophy, compares history to a great wheel, hoisting us up, then dropping us down again. Inconsistency is my very essence, says the wheel. Raise yourself up on my spokes if you wish, but don't complain when you're plunged back
1: down. Yeah all that stuff was like uniquely triggering for me uh with sort of, like, my new responsibilities at my job. You know, I'm, like, recently responsible or, like, am sharing responsibility for the fiscal health of an organization and watching the things that Tony Wilson was doing. I mean, even when he, like, first opens up the hacienda, when he, like, opens up the club and just no one fucking shows up to that thing. It's, like, a Tuesday night. They're putting on a show. There's, like, five people in the crowd. He's just, like, staring at this empty room. And he's like, all right we need to rethink our strategy Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just like that stuff was hitting too hard for me you know watching this movie which is like something i probably wouldn't have even batted an eye at you know if i had watched it even just a couple of years ago i would have been like ah look at this clown but yeah when he's just throwing thirty thousand dollars down or thirty thousand pounds down on just like a vanity table that like is pretty impractical because it has these big wires that are connected to the ceiling and are just seem to be designed to irritate everyone else on staff. (laughs) It's like, this dude's just lighting money on fire. Well, you know, the beginning of the
0: film, he tells us directly that this is about Icarus. And we see Tony Wilson go up in flames multiple times. And, you know, you gotta respect it. Like, especially because this is also the era, you know, like, well, a little after this, right? But, uh, you know, the KLF uh, burned uh, a million pounds for fun uh, at the height of their success (laughs) just to demonstrate that they didn't give a fuck. (laughs) And there's a video, you can all go on YouTube and and search the the time the KLF burned a million pounds, uh, and it exists, you know? And
3: really, I mean, ultimately, like, the film is... is and, and he sort of makes the argument that a lot of what we're seeing is kind of like the bridge to that very moment, because really it kind of ends where that event takes place. That's
0: true, mid '90s, yeah,
3: yeah. And and he even like says at a, at a certain point in a very like kind of humorous way, uh, he's trying to ex- describe this particular moment. He says, "Well, it's sort of a double helix, you know," and there's. <laughs> The history of popular
4: music is like a double helix, okay? That's two waves that intertwine. So one wave goes like this, the other one goes like that. So you've got two waves doing that, okay? Like one like that, one like that. Basically, when one musical movement's in the descendant, another one is in the ascendant. Right now, we're in a kind of a crisscross, a kind of hiatus. But the two guys that are gonna be on the crest of the next wave are Paul and Sean Ryder. This is a true incident. A bit like the hang gliding, which remember works on two levels. This takes place in 1980 when Sean and Paul put rat poison into some bread and fed it to 3,000 pigeons.
3: And he's like, and, and this is this is that moment. This is that band. And I was also then thinking about the topic and how, really, visually speaking, mm. like it's this this is that same moment in the transition between film and digital oh, yes. video technology. It's that it's that it, you know clearly a, a, when one is on its way out and the other isn't quite at its its zenith or its apex yet you know it is this this ultimately like transitional moment this this awkward transitional period
0: where Anything goes, more or less. And yeah, you know, uh, like Phoenix rising from the ashes, you know, Tony Wilson overcomes his financial troubles uh, through the power of ecstasy. (laughs) Uh, And of course, yes, there's, you know, there's stuff in here about the, you know, the birth of, of rave culture. And obviously, yeah, you're right, Andy. This is, it's the 80s, you know, obviously techno, at all is going to get much bigger from from here and, and particularly in england and, and other places in europe and uh yeah he, he he gets to of course you know once he is proven right again uh this time around you know he he compares it to manchester
4: birthplace to the railways computer yeah. the bouncing bomb Tonight, something equally as epoch-making is taking place. See? They're applauding the DJ. Not the music, not the musician, not the creator, but the medium. This is it. The birth of rave culture. The beatification of the beat. The dance age, this is the moment when even the white man starts dancing.
3: Welcome to Manchester. They're they're suddenly there more than anything, like the the realization that it's like it was always just about the atmosphere, perhaps, you know? And we, we didn't capitalize on that enough or we didn't know how to capitalize on that. Or again, perhaps simply times have changed, people have changed, the world has changed. And again, I think it's also, embedded within this film, uh, encapsulated in this sort of shift from Joy Division to New Order, right? In this same kind of spirit of of post-punk to dance music electronic
0: music and we see that as well yeah just like the electronic filmmaking we're talking about here tonight <laughs> baby.
1: the double helix man i you know i gotta say tony wilson he got a bit of a flub there with his business model because when he does talk about how when he's like starting rave culture basically and how you know it's like no one was buying booze you know they're making no money because yeah. everyone was coming in taking ecstasy and pcp it reminded me of um Valentin, who I had referenced on the uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo episode we did, where he, you know, he used to make fun of me for liking Breathless and and other Belmondo films as opposed to like you know the real shit. He used to always talk about all the raves he would go to in in, in France, him and his buddies, and he would say how you know it's like because everyone was going there to take ecstasy and PCP that these clubs in France would charge like twenty dollars. For a bottle of water Mm -hmm. Because you get so dehydrated When you're taking PCP And I was like man you know Tony Wilson, like that's what you probably should have done. You should have pivoted and like kind of like you know gotten a look at the crowd and realized like ooh the water situation we could pretty we could monopolize this. Wow,
0: he he couldn't tell everyone was thirsty because he has an endless supply of spliffs in this movie, (laughs) which is actually one of the great details. I'm not sure I picked up on fully in in previous viewings, but like he is literally smoking like a huge spliff in every scene. Like he is so fucking stoned uh but way less stoned than everyone else which is like why he's tony wilson you know he's like uh you know i'm not i'm not like out of my mind Mm high yeah i gotta be at the studio (laughs) in four hours i've gotta be you know but he is some
3: old fucker about the 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 building of the canals in manchester i just kept thinking
0: like watching him party and like go on tour with the happy mondays and i'm just thinking like god damn this guy's like got a day job like i mean i'm sure he could take like some time off but like
3: well we do get to see a scene where those two worlds collide in a very like cringe-inducing moment of its own when he's when he's interviewing sir keith oh, oh, right <laughs> and he, he has this whole this this whole witty repartee he has planned for his interview of this this man in the house of lords this very well respected but also like you know kind of old stuffy dickhead in his own right and uh he rolls in there on probably just about every single drug imaginable and
0: completely fucking blows it
3: (laughs) calls him brother keith instead of sir keith
0: (laughs) and then he calls him a
1: cunt so
0: yeah (laughs) it's
2: awesome
1: man i wonder if like melanie could have benefited from from some of that drug use like i don't know if it would have like made her like even more paranoid and then like pushed her over the edge but she definitely could have like Mellowed out a bit, I think. I mean, she needs some some kind of outlet, you know. Yeah, Yeah. and it's really too bad because you know you you were talking about Andy, and again, this is another way I like hadn't read it, but I think it's pretty revealing about the film about her like picking and choosing all of these relationships and then further rejecting some when opportunities are presented to her because she's like not willing to just go with the flow and adapt to a situation that's outside of the like the way she's designed it in her head. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about the movie is her relationship with that co-worker, um, Thorsten. I feel like in a normal film, or just like an average film with like a this type of situation where he's the co-worker that is like kind of interested in her, you know, wants to take her out to dinner. Maybe he's being like a little flirty. And Ada doesn't like lean into that too hard they do go out to dinner they go to this african restaurant um when he's like chugging out of the bowl oh my god (laughs) (laughs) i love when he pays the bill and they're like how was it he's like great as always you know like this is his spot he's he's taking melanie out to his spot and i feel like ada does a really great job of like trying to make sure that we don't really sympathize with Melanie the farther the film goes on. I think, you know, we are, it is very open to empathy. But when she does reject Thorsten... He's like, he really is reaching out to her. It's not oh, just yeah. as someone who wants to date her. And I feel like in a typical film, that might be the scenario. It's like, oh, this gross guy that he's like hitting on the new coworker. He won't let it go. But he does pretty quickly let that element of it go and is one of the few people that is starting to pick up on like something's going on with her because anytime he brings up something grounded in like a reality of what she's experiencing she she rejects him and like runs off i mean when she's going to dinner with him at the african restaurant she like bails midway through and just starts weeping in the bathroom because his like casual kindness was too real and she just wanted to close herself off from it
0: yeah i mean it's a tell too that when he brings up work related things at their you know at the restaurant uh, she shuts him down and shuts him down and is like, "Oh, I don't want to talk about work. And yet, in every other social encounter, she is a tireless bore talking to people she doesn't know about her students about work about work in the, you know, the worst way possible, just going on about shit no one cares about. And you're right. So again, like it is so much uh, you know, like her doing in that scenario when this guy is is actually like are you you know are you okay like clearly you're not okay you know yeah i
3: mean as we will like ultimately start to discover like there are clearly like serious undiagnosed mental health issues at play but but yeah i mean like marsh i i i wrote down the exact same note it's like you know with her colleagues she doesn't want to talk about work and rejects any attempts at connectivity that they may have and then uh, can only talk about that with anyone else like that's all she knows how to talk about but it's this um exploration of like you know, failures of communication, failures of intimacy, of camaraderie that she experiences at every turn. Um, and man, I, I mean, there was a movie we watched uh, a while back. Um, I'm blanking on the name, but it was the the summer romance, the the, the night and day, uh, the bad romance episode. Uh, was it night and day? The the couple. No, you
1: I know you're thinking about honeymoon honeymoon yeah Yeah, i was thinking about that too (laughs) yeah
3: you know it it was like the the same kind of spirit that was explored in that film of just people being at all times on the wrong page and and i felt very similar uh here and i i think it does just as brilliantly as that film like show us uh (laughs) like Man, at times, uh, how off certain human beings can be in spite of all attempts that that people around them are, are making. Uh, and like that movie, I mean, I, I just was squirming the whole time. It is so painful to watch people who are just constantly tripping over themselves. I mean, in the case of 24-hour party people, it's a lot of fun. I and mean,
0: oh, yeah. it's It's dizzying yeah. <laughs> to see. And there's, a, there's byproducts. There's like great albums and bands, yeah. you know, that we can all enjoy because of this mayhem. You <laughs> yeah, know?
3: yeah. That, that chaos gave us New It was order. a
0: productive chaos.
3: Sure, sure. But here it is, It there, there's nothing productive going on in the same way that in Honeymoon
1: there was there was no uh, procreation going on whatsoever. No, no. I mean, yeah, it is truly she is constantly on the wrong page with just about everybody she interacts with. And I mean, it reaches that apex during the birthday party scene. where the first moment that Melanie tries to come up with an excuse like like oh I'm gonna play hard to get with my neighbor Tina and she's like oh no I've actually I'm like going out of town to to visit with friends and Tina says oh well that's that's too bad I was gonna invite you to my birthday party and she's like oh well you know it wasn't definite like I, I, I think I can make it I think I you know I can move things around. Just
0: constructing such an elaborate fiction at all <laughs> yeah. times.
1: Every other
3: fucking sentence out of her mouth is a goddamn lie. I mean, she is a a
1: very like untruthful person. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, it just you know it becomes this domino effect of disaster at this birthday party because you know when Melanie and Tina initially bonded, it was because Tina was having trouble with. Um, her boyfriend Tobias and she sort of like sought refuge at Melanie's they ended up having some schnapps and they had what seemed like an okay time it was like one of the only moments where Melanie seems to laugh with any sincerity when she seems to like have like a mild connection with another human being and she thinks that that signifies, you know, that this relationship was going to be great, and it never is. But then at this birthday party, when Melanie steps out a bit, after another series of just, like, terribly awkward encounters. Oh, she's just lingering. Like, yeah. Force it, she's, like, demanding that Tina introduce her to all her other friends so she can, like, develop her network, you know? But she does, Melanie, bumps into Tobias outside, and Tobias, like, has some flowers. And, you know, the relationship is vague. The film doesn't, like, really explicitly tell us what would have been the right move, you know, for Tobias to go in there or to leave. Obviously, well, it does afterwards. Well, we learn. We learn, absolutely. But it's nice that it's, like, somewhat vague enough where he essentially tells Melanie, like, I'm going to go in and surprise her. Uh, and Melanie says, you know, like, no, I don't I don't think that's gonna like a great idea for tonight. Like, I don't know if that's like the right move. Like, maybe it should be another day. And we learned that that was like the absolute worst thing she could have said in that situation. <laughs> you know, um, where Tina is like so fucking pissed off when Melanie comes back up. She's like,
2: Tina, du, ich hab gedacht, dass versaut ihr bloß den Sag mal, Hast du keine eigenen Probleme? Du hast doch alle, oder?
1: what are you fucking around with this for? This isn't your life. Yeah. Like, stop making all of these assumptions about how all of us are going to feel. She <laughs> she, she oversteps and missteps
3: uh, in, in every scenario she's in. Like, at some point, I just wrote down my note, like, she can't not win. Like, everything <laughs> she, every single impulse, every one of her instincts is so Unbelievably wrong. Really, it's sort of like, you know, it became easy for me because I started to go, okay, whatever she's planning to do, whatever her instinct tells her is the right way to proceed in this scenario you just go the complete opposite and you would be fine you would be <laughs> yes. you'd be coasting through all of these various interactions and scenarios and again like on the flip side uh you got to give it up to Tony Wilson that that you know the man kind of uh went in places other people wouldn't have gone and, no doubt and about gambled that. and had a lot of instincts that that ultimately like gave birth to Great acts, great bands. I think he even points out that, you know, this band that kind of represents, uh, in his terms, the, the second act of the story, the Happy Mondays, uh, participated in a battle of the bands at his club and finished in last place. So he signed them immediately yeah. <laughs> and they would come become like a huge touring act and a very influential part of the shift into this hard-partying,
0: Madchester music scene. Well, you know, it's like Tony Wilson says in the movie. He did what he did out of an excess of civic pride.
3: His heroic flaw.
0: <laughs> and as a man myself, who has an excess amount of civic pride, uh, <laughs> as listeners of this show very well know, I felt that mm-hmm. you know. And I think again, Melanie, she needs to join a band. She needs to to become invested in her town. You know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's really too just a a, a, a showcase
3: for for. Uh, you know, two completely different um, depictions of confidence. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, <laughs> Melanie has zero fucking confidence in herself, uh, and Tony Wilson
0: has perhaps way too much.
3: Way too much confidence in <laughs> himself. So much so that, again, not to you know jump right to the ending, but you know, the very final sort of epiphany he has is like you know uh, getting extremely high again, as Marsh described, smoking a joint on. The the runes of the hacienda, the club that has just been forcibly shut down after costing, costing New Order ten thousand pounds a month in losses, uh, and then in his in his sort of marijuana induced like euphoria, he he's suddenly visited by a vision of God, and of course, God in this scenario is played by Steve Coogan himself, and 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 his his only sort of like moment there that he has with this vision of God, is God telling him how right he was about everything he did, more or less. Except
0: he should have signed the Smiths. Well,
3: yes. (laughs) The Smiths, yes. As
0: Armand will have you know.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, man, I think this movie, and that's the thing, why why I'm so glad I got to rewatch it, because when you watch it, like, as we've described, not just in, like, You know, all the stuff and all the people and and all the the crazy sort of visual construction of this film. But there's just like so many jokes going throughout this film. And you really do miss like how sharply written this film is by uh, Winterbottom's longtime collaborator, Frank Cottrell uh, Boyce. And I did want to point out, as I mentioned earlier, that there's some Bond alerts at play. There sure are. Uh, and, and, and a lot of these Bond jokes come from the writer Frank Cottrell Boyce, who has that amazing scene again where, where Steve Coogan in, in another moment is getting high with Alan Erasmus, the Lenny James character, and he, he tells him that, you know. No broccoli.
4: Broccoli the vegetable.
3: yeah. That was uh,
4: that was uh, invented by Cubby Broccoli,
3: a producer of the James Bond films. <laughs> Little known fact. Little known fact. It's true. And their invention <laughs> of that vegetable is what they used to finance all of the Bond films. <laughs> Look it films. up. Yeah. Spot the lie. Yeah. But, but but here you go. Uh, as we were sort of like. Joking about, uh, I think when you introduced this topic and and that it sort of came from Danny Boyle, we talked (laughs) about. Yeah, yeah, we talked about (laughs) how Boyle directed the twenty twelve opening ceremony Olympics that prominently featured Bond. You know who wrote Danny Boyle's opening ceremony? The writer of twenty four hour party people, Frank Cottrell Boyce, who is confirmed a Bond head, because also later in his career, he wrote like an, uh, 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 I guess, a sequel to Ian Fleming's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Perhaps one of the the most secret low-key Bond heads we have yet to encounter on this podcast,
1: Frank Cottrell, boys. Wow. I mean, I feel like every single British production it's probably, probably not even three degrees to Bond. You know, it's probably usually just two degrees to Bond that you can get, like, anyone involved and, like, find their way back to a Bond film, you know?
0: Speaking of so many of the, uh, you know, jokes and one-liners and all that stuff that are just, like, flying throughout the movie, but did you guys catch the, the callback to uh, one of our very own episodes when, uh, you know, it's like...
4: What's the worst band name you ever heard? With. Skinny Monkey. Well, the worst one I was a mate of mine had a band called uh, Barabbas. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Barabbas. Who do you
3: want? Barabbas! Because G- <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's, it's when they're discussing, uh, you know, Joy Division, like how they came up with the idea for Joy Division in right. the car. Because originally Joy Division was called Warsaw, and they're sort of like, that's not a good name, we shouldn't have that. And then Ian Curtis just suddenly, like, you know, mumbles in the back. You know, are you familiar with the Joy Division, the Nazi Joy Division? And they sort of talk a little bit about that. And then Coogan offers, "Yeah, you know, I once had a band called Barabbas. We're talking about a bad name, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Barabbas. That fucking rules so hard." Yeah. The mm-hmm. line I keep thinking about from this movie that Tony Curtis says is Tony uh, Curtis. during one of the shows, and a dude. <laughs> Tony t- Curtis did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tony Wilson <laughs> there's this great line where I can't remember like which show it was but the guy with the posters shows up way too late and the show's like already over and Tony's like you know breaking his balls over it and he sees it and he notes like oh wow though these these posters are spectacular they're, they're quite nice and then but he has this great line where he says though nothing useless could truly be beautiful yeah <laughs> Yeah, they're useless now. So, yeah, they're useless. Like we can't use these posters. Everybody's gone. You yeah, know?
3: yeah, they're useless, but they're beautiful.
1: And that guy
3: is is Philip Saville, who is like a legendary uh, graphic designer, and and like he designed mm. like all those various like album covers and and so much of their art. And and it is amusing that he is this character that constantly pops up. And again, like wrapping it into the whole like you know spirit of this, this very chaotic, uh, factory, you know, records in this factory group. Like he's constantly providing them with great things that are, that are backfiring. The posters are late. He, he also has all these very cool tickets for one of the shows and like the That's show a
0: new Hacienda and he gets the tickets after yeah, it's like like the, the night day of, of the event. Yeah. He's like, okay,
3: what? I guess you can give him out as keepsakes they say. And then he's also the guy that designed that, that uh, New Order single cover
1: that costs them so much money. Mm. But that's, yeah, that's that's Philip Savile. Man, you know, I'm starting to think, I wonder if I disagree with something that we brought up before, this idea that Tony Wilson is, you know, he's so extremely confident and then Melanie has no confidence. I almost wonder if you could read this film as, as both of them having way too much confidence and that like part of their successes come from successes and failures come from the fact that Tony Wilson, he has all this confidence and he's making all of these bad decisions, you know, buying a 30,000 pound table, just spending money like crazy, but it's all like in service of this goal. And then Melanie is Running into all of these scenarios with way too much confidence because her confidence is totally misplaced because she just wants people to like her. She does like I think lacks some self-confidence because she can't like assert herself in a classroom, you know, in like front of these students. But or in any situation, but yeah, (laughs) Yeah, in any situation, but still, it's as if like she's like, no, she's never doubting her approach.
0: Yeah. She has no self-reflection. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We never see scenes afterwards of like, maybe that's not how I should have on about doing this you know i mean it's like perfectly captured when she shows up to the fucking tennis court that tina clearly regularly uh, like goes to and tina just sees her there sees melanie at the tennis court all of a sudden and she's like what are you doing here you know and you could really say that about any scene that melanie is in it's just what are you doing here? yeah but see i i i still don't know if i would read that personally uh, as confidence yeah uh,
3: i i don't because you know All that she's doing is, is trying to like prove something that her worst fears are correct.
2: But instead
3: of even just sort of like facing them and, and living with them, she then like will, will try to pass this whole thing off as, as if she was confident, as if she was simply just in the neighborhood, but she's not in the neighborhood she's doing something so much more toxic you know like if anything it's like it's it's I guess I could read it as like this this weird journey into like toxic positivity for her
0: that that she is trying to constantly sort of like come out say like Everything's fine anytime anyone asks her. Biggest lie of all time. Yeah,
3: yeah. Every day. I think she is like, you know, she's at various times she's like hiding. She's 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 trying not to get caught. She's 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 trying to pass everything off that she does that is yeah. so manipulative and and uh insecure as like, just sort of casual, like, I'm this cool person that that has everything together, but she doesn't have everything together, you know? And again, the difference is that, like, Tony Wilson, like, is the dude sitting in a house that's on fire to get back to this idea of, like, Icarus and going up in flames, and he's the guy that's just sort of like, don't worry, like, it'll all be fine. And relatively speaking, things are kind of fine,
1: you know? Yeah. It isn't the end of the world. Like He got a movie made about him. Yeah,
3: you know, like... <laughs>
0: and then he died.
3: Yeah, and then he died or whatever, you know? But, but but this is a dude that that has so much confidence and and recognizes that all of this is just a game somebody who recognizes the fickleness of fame fortune and success and and he talks about that in his you know exploration of boethius's wheel this idea that that history is a wheel and and you go up and you come down and you go up and you come down and that's just the cycle that that you're caught in but the key to it all is not losing your head. The key to it all is not sitting down and watching stro second hanging yourself before uh, your North American tour or something like that. You know, it's it's that you you ride those waves. You ride your successes and your failures. And Melanie like, cannot weather those moments at all. It is just a a, a gradual disintegration. She cannot recognize her successes. She cannot uh, take those moments and, and build on them, she can only, again, like self-sabotage and destroy. You know, she takes, she takes two steps forward and she takes three steps back constantly. You know, if anything you could say about Tony Wilson, he takes one step forward and one step backwards. That's it. You know, he kind of yeah. remains in the same place he was at the start of the film.
1: Well, I guess then that's one of the things that's so interesting about the ending of the forest for the trees which at first didn't totally work for me and it really reminded me of like a student production like this is her thesis film and here's like this big flourish at the end of it but i actually felt that the ending of the film it it grew a bit more interesting for me because of there's just i feel like a multitude of ways you can read it you know Because the way this film ends is after she attempts to like throw out all of Tina's trash that she's been carting around, she has like trouble getting this shit completely gone out of her life. She's just driving down the highway and she has like a total breakdown and she just starts sobbing. And we linger on her for a while as she's driving the car and she's weeping. And then like as she starts to collect herself, she just sort of like puts her hands in her lap. And it's kind of funny because at first you almost think that it's like revealing of the fact that she's not really driving the car and that it's like a gaff, but then she never takes control of the wheel again. And she's sitting there and she starts looking out the window and she sees all the trees that are going by and she you know gradually the you know the metaphor here she she starts to see the forest as she's looking out the window of her car but then it builds she's just like the sun is like setting and she, the car keeps driving and she climbs into the back seat and she surrenders herself to being a passenger but i guess this is the thing you could read this in multiple ways she maybe killed herself she just like let go of the wheel hoping the car would crash and then somehow she's free then from her her, yeah. her t- turmoil. You on know, on those autobounds going, you know, ninety fucking miles an hour. <laughs> exactly, or That'd yeah. be quick. But of course, then you could also read this as like finally she's surrendering herself to the road in front of her. You know, she's letting go of this wheel, and she's not, you know, demanding every situation go according to the route that she has like developed in her mind. Yeah. I mean for me I guess
3: I I looked at it as yes the the thesis of the film the 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 titular moment obviously and there's a a certain kind of hokiness to it being like so on the nose but at the same time it's like if there's if there's anything for this character to do if we have if we have seen anything if we have experienced anything like it is this idea that that she needs to just like Stop gripping the wheel so tightly. Just like loosen up, let go uh, to 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 surrender her her white knuckle uh, grip on control that that is is leading to so many mistakes and failures. And like that's you know prefaced in the moment with uh, Torsten when he's sort of like. You know when she she does after all this make this like desperate attempt these these big gestures it's always with her grand gestures she's always trying to make these grand gestures to to you know wrench control back over some kind of situation scenario or relationship and she she you know he had been talking to her earlier about like hey kind of getting involved and, and helping out with these the t-shirts for the band, for the school band. I mean, like, to your point, Marsh, yeah, Torsten knew, like, you should get involved with the school band, you know? That's pretty chill. And good times, (laughs) good vibes. And she rejects him, of course, initially, but then after completely like, you know, hitting the goddamn plunger and detonating her relationship finally once and for all with Tina, she then like, you know, runs out in desperation and buys t-shirts for the band. And then, you know, after blowing off parent-teacher conferences, brings them to Torsten and and he's like, yeah, yeah, this is great, this is great, but what's really going on, you know? And it's like, "Yeah, yeah, that's what it's all about. This isn't the real problem, you know? It isn't that... I'm just striking out and having bad luck. There is something deeper here. And the film does ultimately leave it ambiguous as to, does she learn anything? Does she grow? Will she change? It doesn't really matter. You know, that's not what ultimately it's about.
0: And to to tie it to the other film, you know, perhaps all she needed to do was listen to the band granddaddy which is like the only song in the movie which swells up on the soundtrack as she's sitting in the back seat and i just kept being like I know. Why do I know this band? Yeah. You know, like they're a real band. She got a granddaddy song in her student film. Good for her. Uh, and uh, really, yeah, that's what Melanie needed. You know, she needed some music in her life. I keep saying this, but uh, good God, man, you can't just be playing Rear Window all the time. You Ooh. know, this is another movie. Uh, of many we've watched where characters are going rear window and folks yeah. it's never a good idea don't spy on your neighbor show up at their house and then go oh so that's what this is you know and things like that
1: or don't like fucking call your neighbor as they're entering their home and then when they don't pick up the phone <laughs> continue to talk on the answering machine saying hey I, I know your home I just saw you walk in so
2: oh,
0: Yeah, I mean, in in another in another light, you know, this is truly one of the great movies about a shitty neighbor. Uh, yeah, and that shitty neighbor is Melanie. Oh you yeah. know. Whereas you know, Tony Wilson uh, was a much better neighbor. Yeah. You know? mm Hmm. He to, put to Manchester back on the map, <laughs> exactly. baby. Yeah, to you,
1: just, just to Manchester, he was Manchester's neighbor. Yeah, of course, sure he, yeah,
0: he, he offered up, you know, uh, his his shitty clubs and his, uh, you know, his nightclub that looked like quote a fucking abattoir, <laughs> uh, which is uh, wonderful <laughs> stuff, you mm-hmm. know. And at the end, he tells everyone,
4: "Ladies and gentlemen, the hour is upon us." ask you to leave in a disorderly fashion before you do before you do i I want you to invade the officers which are over there in the corner through that door over there and as far as you can loot them office equipment computers musical equipment Take it all, use it wisely, let a thousand Mancunians bloom. Good night, God bless.
3: Wow. What do you want to do, let the, let the repossessor have it all? Nah, fuck it, man, you know, grab yourself a keepsake, <laughs> grab yourself a factory souvenir. And again, I think it's like, it's it's tied up, uh, uh, again, so beautifully at that, at that, you know, in that final scene on the roof when, you know, in this you know rubble, in the smoking remains of of the the, the downfall of their their kingdom. Uh, you know, he's joined on the roof by Sean Ryder, the the troubled drug addicted lead singer of The Happy Mondays, Rob Gretton, the manager of New Order and Alan Erasmus. And they're all kind of sitting up there and and you know, Sean Ryder apologizes to him. You know, I was like, hey, I guess we all kind of lost it. And, and we did blow 400,000 pounds on an album that was delivered with no lyrics from Barbados. You know, and, and he, he apologizes and, and Tony Wilson sort of like, ah, it's, it's nothing. It's OK, right? He, he takes it in his stride. And Sean Ryder hands him this, this big spliff and he takes a hit from it and immediately says, now that's some good stuff yeah I brought it back from Barbados, and what does he say? Well, like looks like it wasn't a total waste of a trip after all, you know they like and he means it. I mean, he genuinely means it in that moment that that it it ultimately is this sort of like this ride, this cycle and 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 he is just so much more better equipped at at handling it, obviously
1: well, yeah, well, it's funny when I was watching. 24-hour party people and seeing all of this British music history being depicted on DV, you know, it, it made me think about watching Get Back last year, the the Peter Jackson uh, like smooth Beatles documentary, well. and I know he was trying to make it like his claim was that he was trying to make that look real it's like i wanted it to look like someone was watching an hd video on youtube or whatever however he tried to fucking justify it but to me it's kind of funny you know in hindsight i feel like he accidentally was trying to make that movie look like dv and he didn't even realize it you know he was like oh he was doing 24-hour party people to the beatles he wanted it to be like what if a dv camera was there now I I also just wanted to
3: say that I I I hope you learned a lot watching it, Ryan. I mean, I know that you know you 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 didn't know who the band Fear was. We've we've covered that before on a, on the podcast and I've been over that and, many uh, times. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that you were able to learn about Joy Division <laughs> and New Order and the Sex Pistols. Did you did you take away?
1: So are you going to listen to them on Spotify? Well, well, I mean, actually, to be perfectly honest, like. So I mean, obviously, yes, I know who fear is, but I will actually say I didn't I, I didn't know anything about Joy Division. I've listened to them before, but I had no idea that Ian Curtis killed himself. What? I didn't know about Where their have history. You been? No, Jesus I Christ! Know. I was never like a huge Joy Division fan, so I never. Well, like, clearly you never the, listened to them. Oh man. my God! Yeah, yeah, I had no, I had no idea. I'm, uh, it, then I genuinely am very glad that yeah. you did learn a few things watching No, it's this true. Uh, this, this film was very educational. I, I feel like I got a lot out of it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I should add, I, I guess, again, Ryan, you, you just take the bench here for a minute, but, like, Marsh, for you, um, you know, I guess, uh, which uh, performance of Ian Curtis do you prefer? Sean Harris in 24-Hour Party People or Sam Riley in Control?
0: You know, I I don't really remember the control performance that well. All I remember is sitting there the whole time going like, that guy really looks like Bernard Sumner. You know, oh, like yeah. the New Order guy yeah. was cast perfectly. And I was like dazzled by that, that I apparently can't remember the Ian Curtis performance. I remember liking the movie, you know, I, I think... I'm I'm more of a, a 24-hour party people guy in general. Yes, in eh. terms of its its madcap energy and less you know Corbin black and white seriousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do play their own instruments in the movie, which is cool. So like all the music, Ryan in control is these actors playing and then being mm. reco- being being recorded actually. So there's like some fidelity there, which is interesting. Um, but. You know, I'll go. I'll go twenty four hour party people. Yeah, you know? dude.
3: I Sean Harris's performance. He does is... so much
0: with so little and such little screen time, and he has like just an insane intensity. Uh, that's that's really great. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I guess then you know when you're thinking about other films that were shot on your beloved DV camera, uh, what are some of your favorites? Wow. Do you have any like yeah of, of course I've got favorites. Do, do you have one? Yeah.
0: <laughs> of course. Well, I wanna I wanna shout out Uh, an obvious DV classic Spike Lee's bamboozled from 2000. One of the great DV movies that was, I believe shot on a Sony VX 1000, a camera I knew my way around back in the day. Um, I also want to shout out, I had to pick something that was shot on a DVX 100. Uh, so I want to shout out, uh, seasons one through five of it's always sunny in Philadelphia, which I think, uh, (laughs) perfectly capture uh you know a certain like dv griminess griminess that that i love and that's so perfectly fit that show at that time when it was coming out um and uh giajanko's still life from 2006 is one of the great dv movies that blends fiction and you know documentary setting as he often does in uh all its pixelated glory at the Three Gorges Dam. All that big, epic China vastness uh, yeah. on on digital video. Isn't Twenty Four City also probably mini DV? I feel like that might be like HD, actually. Yeah. Because that was like just like two years later. Ah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like 2008, nine, maybe. I'd have to double check it. Like Joy but.
3: Division, you know? It was a very fleeting time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the mini D <laughs> V Ascension. Yes. It flew, it flew so brightly like Icarus, but now here we are, Ari Alexa, red, it all looks the
1: same. It all looks like shit. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I'm also really like, I'm pro-Julian Donkey Boy. Of course! When I saw a print of that, I'm like, I've never seen a movie that looks like this before. Like, this movie, just the way the digital looked um, in that one, projected on film, crazy. Beautiful movie. Big time. Well, it was my topic this week,
0: and it was a fun one. But now we must move on (laughs) to Andy's topic. What do you have for us this time? Well, there's been a lot of talk lately in
3: certain circles of the, you know, wasteland of the internet of this brave courageous TikTok time traveler. I'm not sure if either of you are familiar with this right now, but there's a there's a there's a TikTok account that just sprung up claiming to be a time traveler from the year like 2616 or something like that. And this uh, this account has been posting all these things about they know the exact time and moment when World War III is going to break out and they're trying to, to prevent cataclysmic events that are taking place. But all of it, of course, is just simply uh, coming to us, these transmissions through TikTok. So it got me just thinking more broadly about that subject itself time travel so bring me next week visions from other times perhaps same place i guess but yeah let's have some 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 journeys through space and time i'm looking forward to the
0: trip gonna fire up the hot tub right now As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email. Please send us an email to Marsh's Mailbag, So Dusty. You sound like Melanie now. I sound like Melanie, I know. (laughs) Uh, And that's Gauntlet Movie Podcast
1: at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody.
2: Sie musste wach bekommen, also machte sie auf den Weg. Als sie beim Riesen war, wollte er sie zerstampfen, aber sie der ganze sehen und er fiel schlafen zu wollen. Danach ging sie zu den Schlangen und sprach, Warum seid ihr so böse zu Leuten, die euch nichts gemacht haben? Warum seid ihr so böse? Die Schlangen sagten, wir wissen es nicht, es tut uns leid. Dann ging sie zur Prinzessin auf den Turm, darin lag die schlafende Prinzessin im Stroh. Sie trauerte um sie und fing an zu weinen. Die Tränen schossen ihr aus den Augen und fielen den schlafenden Prinzessin auf den Körper. Aber eine Träne der bitte ganz still bis die Stunde zu Ende ist.